Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey everyone, it's Cardiff. Uh, a quick but a very bittersweet announcement before we start the show. This is going to be my last time hosting Alpha Chat. I've taken a job outside of the FT. Uh, but I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening. Founding and hosting Alpha Chat and developing it into what it's become alongside, of course, our amazing producer and editor, Amy Keene, uh, has been one of the most deeply fun and absorbing and, frankly, indulgent projects of my career. Uh, and you made that happen. But also, please keep this podcast in your feed because my wonderful colleagues on FT Alphaville will be taking over along with Amy. So, you've already heard from Matt Klein and Alex Skaggs and Izzy Kaminska. You know they're great. And every now and again, I'll even be popping in as guest host. And now, on with today's episode. On the show today, who better to interview one last time than Jeremy Edelman, a Princeton historian, author of a number of books, one of them being Worldly Philosopher, The Odyssey of Alberto Hirschman. It's his magisterial biography of the late economist. You've already heard Jeremy on the show discussing Hirschman's The Passions and the Interests, and more recently, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. Today we're going to be talking about Hirschman's The Rhetoric of Reaction, about the argumentative styles that emerge in times of progress. Jeremy, welcome back, my friend. Don't look so sad. Yeah, <laughs> let's make this more uh, sweet than bitter. Yes, okay. okay. <laughs> that sounds like a hell of a project. All right. So, the rhetoric of reaction. Here's where I want to start. It's with uh, the definition of the word reaction and the word reactionary. Hirschman didn't mean it in the kind of negative connotation with which it's often associated of like a super hard right crazy person, right? He meant it in the more literal and original sense, reactionary, how people react when something big happens. That's that's exactly what he was trying to do. He felt that, and I'm sure we'll get to this at the end, that there was a way in which when he was working on these ideas in the late 80s and early 90s, and perhaps our, anticipates a bit our own climate nowadays, that um, people had bunkered into ways of talking at each other without being able to hear each other. And that what he was trying to do was to unpack to destigmatize reactionary forms of argument so that we could understand reactionaries the word games that they play their styles and to take away some of the you know that that sting that that they belong in a container of wackos and to take them a lot more seriously i mean he he pokes fun at them along the way but he makes the argument that reactionary thinking is part of the natural condition I get the sense that he used some of his reading and understanding of psychology here, the idea that big events end up almost unconsciously, almost without our seeming to realize it, seem to trigger uh, words and ideas and modes of thought that to us seem very sensible, but that have been used again and again in the past, and maybe we're not aware of how deeply embedded those historical arguments are already in our thinking. And so things that we think original or sensible may not be. And the right wing or the conservatives are not the only reactionaries around. There's a left wing form of reactionary thinking 
Remember, the penultimate chapter of that book is about progressive forms of intransigence. And in fact, when he wrote the book, he originally wanted to call it the rhetoric of intransigence, Mm -hmm. not the rhetoric of reaction. He realized that, in fact, it's more intransigent forms of arguments that were really the thing that he was looking at and that the left and the right were equally prey to these forms. But the publisher said, no, 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 no. We live in a... This was, of course, in the late Reaganite period that he was kind of coming up with these ideas. They said, no, 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 this is what's going to sell the book. And in translation, in other languages, it was called intransigence, not, okay. not rhetoric of reaction. Yeah. Because people think of it as just a right-wing thing. Yeah. You bring up this book fairly early on uh, in your biography of Hirschman, even though it was, in fact, one of his last, like, really major works. Actually, it is his last major work. I mean, the Mm -hmm. rest that comes out afterwards are really compilations of essays. Right. Yeah. Right. But you bring it up, uh, I think, in part because it's a book that really very much uh, signals his wish for people to just be more open-minded. And I think it pretty well encapsulates his use of doubt, not doubt as in a kind of nihilistic sense, but doubt of certain kinds of certainty and utopian thinking, and that when you question that, you at least open yourself up to the possibility for other kinds of outcomes than the ones that you might think are inevitable just based on current trends. Including the pluses and minuses of a favorite theme of yours, which is (laughs) unintended consequences, right? And the things that we can learn from them if we have an open mind. But he's also making the case for and then back to the doubt issue the theme that we've been talking about that the possibility of being wrong and and intransigence don't admit that possibility and that's the style of the argument he's trying to go after and that's the enemy of democracy he wants what he calls democracy friendly rhetoric and that's where there's a little bit of a tension with his hypothesis that that well we should take the stigma out of reactionary thinking but at the end he says Reactionary thinking, especially in these standoff forms of arguments, and we're stuck in the middle of them right now in the United States and elsewhere, they can be the enemies of democracy because they eliminate tolerance and pluralism. And you you look like you're going to jump in on this one. Well, no, what I was going to say is that you make a, a point about his stylistic approach, too, that I think is really important before we even get into sort of the substance of the book, right. which is that. Hirschman never wanted to tell people how, like, a specific event, what it would lead to, what the outcome would be based on, like, earlier existing principles. Actually, what he was trying to find were better frameworks for understanding the specific event itself. Uh, I see him as sort of, in this book, trying to point out where the trap doors are. Yeah, that's right. And, and, And that they've been there, as you said earlier, for a long time. And at one point, they were much more self-consciously put there. And now we don't know they're there. We just take them for granted. And we tumble into them all the time, slightly surprised that we live in a standoff. It's my narrative versus your narrative style of, of discourse. Back in the day, let's say back in the late 18th century where he starts out the story, it was a much more explicit game, right, about the French Revolution. And just one, this isn't a a corrective, but you referred to big events. Actually, reactionary thinking is a response, not just to big events, because those used to happen all the time, but to the idea of active, purposeful change, right? That you could, humans could change the world, right? 
and the French Revolution being the first of the great audacious events to try to master time and space. Right. And reactionaries push back against that idea. So there were three events, uh, in fact, that he uses to sort of formulate his arguments in this book. The first event, as you said, was the French Revolution, and specifically the aims of the French Revolution, which were to like advance the rights of men. Those were gendered times, so we would think of it today as the rights of men and women, right? right? But then the second event would be like the sort of push towards universal suffrage in right. the 19th century. And then finally, more recently, the development of the welfare state. And so you have like three different things we're talking about here. One is the civil rights of citizens, right? The second is the push to expand those rights in the political dimension to more and more people. And then finally, in the socioeconomic realm, how do you sort of advance the position or just in general raise living standards for more people? Um, so it's those three events that he uses uh, to formulate his arguments. And then he has three arguments. So let's set the table. What are the three arguments? Uh, and then we'll go through sort of how each of those arguments applies to right. each of those three events. So starting with the first one, perversity. Yes. Okay. It's perhaps the most common of the, of the trilogy here. And the perversity argument, which has evolved over time according to these three moments that you described, the 18th century civic rights, 19th century political rights, and the 20th century social rights that are attached to our modern concepts of citizenship. And the perversity thesis argues that these audacious efforts to expand rights in these various ways produce the effect that undermines the original intention. So not just that it's no effect, it actually goes hard in the other direction, in the opposite right. direction. That's right. We'll get to the other variations, on, but that you can actually set yourself back uh, in the very field that you're trying to improve. And so with each one of these, whether it's civic, political, or social rights, each one of these has a cluster of counter-arguments that argue that you can set back civic rights, you can set back political rights, and you can set back social rights and the welfare state. Okay, uh, the second argument is the argument from futility. Right, and this is, this is actually the one, though the perversity thesis is the most common of the three, the futility thesis is the one that was most current at the time that he was writing the book in the late 80s, which is, you're just wasting your time. Mm-hmm. All those efforts at reform never really get to the basic structures, and it's the one for which he reserves the most of his sarcastic comments, in the sense that the futility argument tended to love to scorn reformers, mm-hmm. right, for being naive, for being well-intentioned between quotation marks. It's and very patronizing. Very patronizing form of argument, and he had no time for that. I mean, he just thought these guys loved to take, as they would say in England, you know, take the piss out of uh, reformers, but never applied the argument to themselves. Mm-hmm. And he he really thought that this argument that people were wasting their time was itself a waste of time. He had the most scorn for that, whereas he had some regard for perversity uh, theorists, and we're going to get to third in a second. But this one, this one really got under his skin. He actually said explicitly that it was much more insulting than the perversity argument yeah. because it essentially said that 
the perversity argument at least held out the hope that if you better directed social reforms that they might work, whereas the futility argument just says that social reforms will never have any kind of an effect no matter what, so everybody's just kind of a joke for thinking otherwise. That's right, and in the condescension, even the reactionary form could say, oh, 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 I agree with what you want, but you're just so naive. What you want to do is going to never work. I have better insight into reality than you do. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for standoff rhetorics, this was the one that created the impossibility for any dialogue. And then third, the Jeopardy, the argument from Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the Jeopardy one was, in some senses, the most dangerous because it argued that you could jeopardize the entire enterprise, right? That it's not just that you could set back the potential you know, for the realm that you're trying to remedy, but you're uh, threatening to jeopardize the entire social framework upon which we we lived. Yeah. Uh, in other words, that there were earlier advances that had already been made right. and that the Jeopardy argument said that, yeah, okay, you might get something new and good out of whatever you're trying, but you're going to completely dissolve the earlier gains and it's not worth the cost. Absolutely. So even if, once again, even if there was an agreement on the overall games, the method of reform that say, quote unquote, progressives, and we should probably unpack what that is, because the reactionaries live in a dialectical relationship with progressives, that the progressives threaten to set the whole thing back in Mm -hmm. some ways. And we can go through the catalog of examples that he rolls out. All right, let's do exactly that. Uh, Let's start with Hirschman identifying the people arguing from the perversity thesis as applied to uh, the French Revolution. And of course, we've got to talk about Edmund Burke, who was given a lot of credit for having anticipated the really horrible outcomes of the French Revolution. Hirschman wasn't Burke's biggest fan because he said that Burke's condemnations were too sweeping, too comprehensive, that he couldn't untangle the specific aims of the French Revolution, which were good and noble and applied better might actually work out, from the really horrible execution of it, quite literally in many cases executions when we're talking about the Jacobins, right? And the specific way in which the French Revolution itself unfolded. Hirschman wasn't a big fan of it, although he understood it. I mean, Hirschman has an ambivalent relationship with Burke. He, he's been reading Burke f- for decades and thinking, of, in a way, obsessing about Burke in the same way that he obsessed with a figure like Machiavelli and having, in a, in a way, an internal argument throughout about the possibility of reform because Burke was the great theorist, the great modern theorist of counter-revolution, mm-hmm. right? And Burke has two functions. He's both a, I just opened the page here because Hirschman has a great taxonomy of the arguments. He's the great perversity thinker. So he gets us going and it's the most, and that's where we have the longest tradition of reactionary thinking. And his arguments get recycled throughout time. And yes, the perversity argument is that the efforts to create and this was the 18th century was the moment of you know, civic freedoms, uh, giving people universal civic rights, that the revolution, instead of you know, giving it to people incrementally, which was, you know, in a sense, the conservative model, that you do, you give rights and claims only to preserve stability and order. Uh-huh. He's not against giving rights, but you do it very, very incrementally to preserve the social fabric. 
the perversity argument argued for, for, for Burke that giving out those rights threatened to set the civic enterprise even further back. So in other words, uh, the previous form of tyranny via like monarchy and all that would be replaced by a much worse tyranny Robespierre, uh, yeah. the violence, the guillotine, that's exactly it. And and you want to give out rights, but then you wind up, you know, bathing a society in blood. Yeah. You know, something I learned uh, from Hirschman's book, from the rhetoric of reaction, is that the others who argued that there would be perverse consequences from the French Revolution that weren't Burke, right, argued uh, a lot from myth, a lot from their understanding of Greek myths, that if you try to defy the gods and change the world for the better— they will scorn you and make it even worse than it was before, that it was hubristic to think that you could right. change things for the better. The power of divine providence. Mm-hmm. The difference for Burke, and this is why it's a modern condition, this is a feature of modern society. He's admitting that there's something different about living with markets, living with mass societies, that we need to manage the modern condition differently. And this isn't about God on earth. This is this is our modern new doesn't yet have his sights set on the industrial society, but he's got commercial society there, and that you could really disrupt a market society that was vulnerable right, to these kinds of assaults and mobilization that could have perverse outcomes. And also at the time, uh, we had a lot of thinkers steeped in the Scottish Enlightenment, That's and right. there again, uh, there was a heavy emphasis on unintended consequences, right. not the least of which was the positive unintended consequence elucidated by Adam Smith, which That's was right. that everybody pursuing their own greedy stuff would lead to better societal outcomes, right? right? Their own greedy ends would lead to the invisible hand, and that made it better for everyone. But they were applying it in this case uh, in the opposite direction, which is That's that right. there was an unintended consequence that actually set back your cause rather than forwarded it. And in many ways... What Hirschman is trying to do, and we've been talking about Hirschman and Adam Smith for a while, what he was trying to do was to recover the possibility of positive side effects and unintended consequences that the reactionaries had flipped and kind of monopolized for themselves. Because what were progressives out there trying to do to create intended effects and thought that they'd mastered the laws of motion? Whether it was the French Revolution, we're going to see this when we deal with Marxists, they really thought they had a lock on this one. You know, and these guys were saying, no, 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 all the unintended consequences and the side effects veer to one direction, which is to make what you're setting out to try to do pointless or self-destructive. Uh, let's talk about the perversity thesis as applied to the attempt to expand suffrage. This is where we first uh, in the book encounter the idea that the rule by majority would lead to uh, essentially a rule by majority of idiots, right? There's a dangerous kind of crowd psychology. And so rather than having like this enlightened few people govern over everybody, you would get a super unenlightened crowd essentially governing over, I guess, like themselves, but society generally. And then actually you would end up with fewer, you'd end up with fewer rights uh, than more. It would be an anti-liberty uh, result when the whole point was to expand liberty. That's right. And the main figures there are Gustave Le Bon and Herbert Spencer, the positivist of the middle to second half of the 19th century, who argued, just as you said, that, that sure, you can have universal male suffrage, the two reform acts of the 1830s and the 1860s, but it's just going to produce a mob rule and imperil the liberties that informed the democratic rights to begin with. And that's the perverse outcome. A lot of so democracy the... is the uh, is the enemy of liberty. 
Yeah, a lot of scorn for the masses, uh, made explicit, by the way, by a lot of writers that we still revere today. Yeah. It was interesting that Hirschman pulled out a lot of those examples to kind of show, I think, subtly maybe, uh, that a lot of the sort of enlightened thinkers of the past were really quite backwards on, on mm-hmm. some of these issues. Well, they were back. I mean, they lived in an age in which it did feel like a threat that for these the unwashed masses to be included in the body politic. So we've moved from the civic rights of universalizing the idea of the legal personhood of, of men, and some would were claiming for women in the 18th century now to the 19th century, that it's the political domain that had to be opened up. And to argue that people had political rights threatened to give the irrational masses rights to elect you know, in a sense, populists and demagogues and that sort of thing. He he cites uh, what I guess could be considered a modern version of the idea, although it's a much more, I should say, milder version of it, uh, which is the public choice argument. Right. Hirschman, as you write in your book, had uh, quite a few battles, especially towards the end of his career with the public choice theorists, yeah. um, with Gordon Tullock in particular. Yeah. Their thinking was that if you had all of these interest groups represented as they have a right to be as part of a democracy, that they would all start kind of like fighting for stuff. And then it would end up like in a a way you'd end up with a perverse outcome as well, where you wouldn't not only would you not have like an expanded democratic process, actually, you'd have a less democratic process because all of these individual interest groups would be kind of like stomping all over each other. That's right. And it it was a combination of. You know, Charles Murray, he had Charles Murray in his sights and the public choice theorists, which argued that giving and they were, of course, moving into the 20th century in a debate about welfare and social rights to say that, uh, in fact, all of these reforms around welfare were in a sense, putting people back, that minimum wages, unemployment insurance, all that sort of thing, in some senses made the working class worse off. Right. So right. instead of making poor people better off, you just ended up with more poor people because you'd incentivize them to do less work or That's to be right. lazy or whatever. That's right. right. And in the case of the public choice uh, theorists, they argued that powerful people would figure out the rules of the game and create a more institutionalized mechanism for what they called rent-seeking, right? And and take over the rules of the game in order to make sure that they always help themselves. And of course, the alternative to this for a lot of them was competition in the market for the rich as well as for the poor. Yeah. There's something interesting about the application of this to the welfare state too, which is it Hirschman doesn't say that all of those arguments are necessarily wrong. He doesn't, for instance, come out and say that, yes, a higher minimum wage is always a good idea, right? What he says is that we should at least be open to the possibility that there's something to be learned here, that we can try it out, we can experiment. And for those ideas that do turn out to have the perverse outcomes, well, you, of course, stop doing them. But the society is capable of that, right? But you don't shut it down just based on an argument. You can try it and you can see. That's right. And not use it as a reflex. You know, his consistent argument against all of the reactionary rhetorical styles is that they over-argue. You know, they don't admit evidence that disconfirms their hypotheses, and they exaggerate the claims that they do rule out. Often, if some of the ruling out the possibility of side effects that disconfirm them or the possibility that they might actually be wrong. 
And that's the dilemma, right? So he, he says, yes, there are lots of times when we get perverse outcomes and, and bad negative or and negative uh, unintended consequences. That's being open to the possibility of being wrong, but that has to be applied to reactionaries. Yeah. Uh, let's turn now to the argument from futility, yeah. okay? Uh, let's go back to the French Revolution. I hadn't heard this before because the Tocqueville that I've read has just Democracy been on America, America. Right. Right, right? But in his writing on the French Revolution, apparently what he said, one of his arguments, mm-hmm. was that nothing really changed, right? You had yeah. this bloody and awful revolution, and it looked to be an event of seismic importance, but right. that actually when you look at what existed before in the ancient regime and what, what came afterwards— Basically, nothing nothing mattered. Didn't right. change. Now, this admittedly is a slightly idiosyncratic reading of that book, which is a brilliant book. <laughs> I mean, but the the underlying argument from the Ancien Regime uh, is that for Hirschman uh, that the revolution was a spasm of political, gory, horrible violence that yielded no underlying transformation in the social hierarchies of France. Right. So it was futile, and, and in a way. Tocqueville was uh, a reformer of sorts. In fact, he was sent off to do democracy in America was the result of an effort to reform the penitentiary system in France. And he was sent to the United States to look at how Americans built their prisons. It's hard to imagine looking (laughs) at the United States as a model for that nowadays. But once upon a time, that was a model for reform. So he wasn't opposed to reform. It was the revolution. It was that kind of the, the, the intentional, audacious effort to kind of transform a society only to leave it more or less intact except with a far fewer people because they got wiped out by the mm-hmm. violence. This is when we get into the next century and the expansion of suffrage. And here I think Hirschman does reserve a lot of his, yeah. I don't want to say anger because he doesn't really seem to become angry in his writing, but a lot of his scorn, a lot of his condemnation for the arguments from futility because these arguments, and I think they came from um, Mosca and Pareto, right, were that, suffrage is only on the surface and that it doesn't make any bit of damn difference because all you really ever have are either the ruler and the ruled or the elites and the non-elites, right? right. And everything else you introduced was nonsense. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, variations on Marx, various Marxists had similar kind of arguments that these political rights don't address underlying social and economic structures. And in fact, they themselves are, let's say, prey to elites to manipulate for their own work. And while Mosca and, and Pareto were thinking more about psychology and and economics, perhaps the most famous of the political renditions on this is uh, a man called Robert Michels, who's in, in a way the founder of German political science. Who's He's the one who coins the term the iron law of oligarchy. The creation of mass politics creates mass elections and creates mass political parties. And these mass organizations wind up getting ruled by an oligarchy. Increasing scale lends itself to hierarchy. And there's no way around that in the futility arguments. And of course, we know that you know, one of the stories about electoral reform in Britain was at least in the first two instances, they did wind up in some senses privileging elites because they were the only ones. You increase the size of the suffrage, 
Now, election campaign costs rose. And as election campaign costs rose, middle class and lower middle class English politicians couldn't afford to play the game anymore. So there was a one, in some senses in which elites did recover their power because they could control the rules again. Sound familiar to nowadays? That's what gets picked up in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Can you think of anything more antithetical to Hirschman's way of thinking than something that includes the phrase the iron law. He was the great theorist against iron laws. The laws of motion. (laughs) Right, exactly. Whether it was Marxist or reactionary, he just, all that, you know, necessitarian way of thinking that things had to obey certain very mechanical prescriptions. He had no time for them. He really, for him, the definition of liberty was the right to uh, in a sense, a non-projected or an unprojected future, that your future was not foretold. Uh, he has uh, a clever application of the identification of the futility argument uh, to the expansion of the welfare state. And it's an argument that really still continues to this day. The idea here was that the safety net, right, or welfare funds would never actually reach the people who need them. They would effectively be captured by the middle class. And he gives a couple of examples. So for instance, uh, it's still only a minority of people in the U.S. that graduate from college. And the benefits of public universities, for instance, which are funded in part by taxpayer dollars, including the tax dollars of the poor, by the way, end up benefiting the middle class, right? right? Primarily, or the middle and upper class. Same thing with, you know, policing, which helps everyone, but it primarily helps the people who actually own property, who own things, right? right? And so uh, he identified this argument. Uh, He didn't always agree with it, but he identified a couple of places where it made a fair point. That's right. And and this is where the the public choice thinkers really come onto his radar screen. I mean, you're absolutely right. He's prepared to concede that they do have a point here. Does that make it all futile? No. Mm -hmm. Right. And and in a way, the futilists are self-serving. Right, in the sense that they, they think that it's always bound to be captured by the people who already have access to power. He also, though, says that the feudalists make the mistake of thinking that just learning that it didn't work yeah. is the end of it, as opposed to what might happen next. And he always is thinking about what might happen next. And then this also, I think, comes in part from his experience in Latin America and in developing countries. So he gives this great example of where I forget which country it was that expanded a lot of public housing, but it turned out that the public housing ended up going more to the middle class than to the lower classes. And what he said was that, yeah, that was true, okay, but that that country also ended up learning a lot about what it takes to build public housing and about how to target the needs of the poor. And so it was still a learning experience. And again, those are second-order effects. If you don't take the intervention seriously enough as something that can yield many layers and many spaces of unintended consequences. The irony, of course, is all of these guys, all of the reactionary thinkers, pin everything to unintended consequences, but then are extremely selective about which unintended consequences they're going to choose in order to sabotage the idea of progress. And the feudalists are are, are like masters at this one, always cherry-picking in his view. And that's just one example. So he says there there are many first order, second order, unintended consequences, and things that if you look at over time, start to yield effects that you didn't necessarily see 
after you've already passed judgment on something before it became a reality. And that's the kind of circularity he's trying to identify because these were the arguments against reform before you ever got off the drawing books, in a sense. But it also, um, I think... Tell me if I'm not mistaken, but stems from the fact that he knew so many social scientists who were constantly studying the effects of these new policies. And so his point was that if you try a new policy, right, yes, like the intended effect might not work out, but you end up, number one, learning that so you probably will be less likely to try it again. Not always, but, you know, maybe. But also that you learn about what are the other consequences and how can those things be either targeted or reformed out if they're bad ones. Hirschman saw that these things were constantly being studied, okay? And yes, social scientists will kind of fluctuate in how much they're listened to, yeah. right, by the by the political classes yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But even so, that was knowledge, that was experience, and that would be valuable over time. And, and he's been duking this out since the 1960s, as you said, in, in Latin America, specifically related not so much to, well— you know, to modern reform, but specifically reforms directed at economic development, right? That that there were variations of these arguments that were being used to make the case against the possibility of what he called reform mongering, right? And, and development projects. And that you needed to look at sometimes the side effects of a development project were more important than the intended effects, and the intended effects may actually turn out to be, you know, disappointing. And that was, you know, we have this term and that he kind of coined, and now everybody uses a fracasomania, you know, the, the propensity to think that everything is failing. Well, that may be true if you're just looking at the immediate, you know, the disappointment of the intended effects. But off on the margins, far more examples of how the intervention or the project or the policy yielded effects that were actually much more positive than one realized. Yeah. And and in that case, he's really trying to get Latin American reformers to see that they were doing a better job than they tended to think they were. A failed project, maybe, but the people who actually were making the decisions there now have some experience in running a project. They have some experience in market outcomes and how to bring products to market and how to develop their businesses. In yeah. other words, all that and stuff yields dividends. From failing itself, yeah. right? If, if, as you said, if the, if, if the objective can be seen as the learning process and if, as he felt, the core of what was scarce in the world of development was the capacity to make decisions, right? that actually failing could be an incubator for uh, a capacity to make better decisions by evaluating what went wrong. But if you annul the possibility of a policy or a project because it's going to be futile, you eliminate the possibility that you might learn something about the experience of it not working. Right. Let's go to the third argument, which is the argument from Jeopardy. To remind our listeners again, because we covered it uh, at yeah. the start of the chat, uh, the argument from Jeopardy is that a new reform okay, might end up yielding even the intended benefits, but that the cost would be that it would completely undermine or dissolve a previously accomplished reform or advance in civilization, right? Hirschman says something kind of interesting at the start of this part of the book, which is that the arguments from perversity and futility 
were fairly straightforward, right? They were wrong or they were right, but they were fairly simple to explain, right? The argument from Jeopardy could often take many more kind of specific and complicated forms. And so he ended up looking at a couple of them as they applied to specific events in history rather than sort of using this framework of the three events of the French Revolution, suffrage, and the welfare state, right? So here are the two he looked at. One was democracy as a threat to liberty, and then the other one was the welfare state as a threat to both democracy and or liberty. So let's take that first one, the idea of democracy as a threat to liberty. Obviously, this would apply to the reform laws you mentioned earlier in England, but to other attempts to advance suffrage, to advance the vote. You jeopardize all the progress that you have made so far, right? So it's not just undermining that particular initiative, nor is it just that it's futile, but rather embarking on the reform is going to set you further back altogether. And in that particular case, the fear was not just that in the reaction to the reform laws that elites would find a cunning way to keep power and nothing really would change, which was the feudalist argument, but rather you'd get, in a sense, a new form of despotism, right? So that populism could go on to become a new form of mob authoritarian rule, right? That would undermine the liberties that made democracy possible in the first place. And he goes through various scenarios about that happens. That, of course, gathers a lot more steam by the late 19th century and becomes very powerful in the 20th century, in part for explaining the authoritarian turn in the interwar years. Mm -hmm. So even before we get to the critique of the welfare state, which we'll get to in just a second, there is a, a read on what the relationship is between democracy and totalitarianism that is born right out of the middle of the 19th century feeling that there's going to be some dystopian consequence as a result of electoral reform. Yeah, he sort of makes the point that, like, for instance, the right to property was really hard won Mm. and that if you ended up uh, with too much democracy, it would threaten to violate that hard-won right to property because you'd essentially end up with a lot more expropriation, um, I guess through taxation, but it could be something uglier, you know, that kind of thing. But it would also apply to other ideas like free trade, which was thought to be, you know, a big wealth generator and still is, right? And things of that nature, even the advance of technology would be slowed if the mob saw that maybe some of their jobs would be be risked. That's right. Well, and that... In, in a sense, on the political domain, I mean, we'll get to the social, economic, and the mm-hmm. welfare side in a minute, and when we have to deal with Hayek. Um, <laughs> but the, the the great political scientist of this is Samuel Huntington, right? That what giving electoral rights does in societies that are not ready for them is to make them ungovernable. And then when they become ungovernable, you get versions of populism, authoritarianism, militarism that in the Jeopardy thesis, undermines everything, right? It it creates unrule rather than popular rule, right? And, uh, you know, he he formulated this most famously in 1968 in a classic work uh, called Political Order and Changing Societies, adding parenthetically, I mean, at that moment, Hirschman was co-teaching with Samuel Huntington at Harvard and MIT. They ran a joint seminar together on development and the two of them were beginning to part ways. 68 was a sort of a watershed moment for them. But Huntington goes back and has a reading about the nature of political order and its fragility, right? And therefore arguing 
against these purposeful, active, political moments of reform that they threaten to undermine everything. Do you see a little bit of Hirschman's kind of cheeky sense of humor uh, here also? Mm. Because he shows how every time there's a kind of incremental advance and all of these arguments come out again, they might point to the last advance and say, yeah, but that was it. That has to be the thing that is enshrined. We can't go forward any longer, right? Because if we keep going in this direction, eventually we'll get to a point where all of our liberties are threatened, right? right? And it was like the same arguments trotted out each time the vote was going to be extended to another slice of the population. Uh, It's a very kind of amusing passage, I got to say. That's right. And he's got this... He has this line about, uh, I mean, we could fish it up probably, but essentially they love arguments that justify the the Jeopardy argument, and it's very compelling, except when it's not, right? right. Which turns out to be a lot of history, right? Yeah. So they telescope time, and this is really where you get these very stylized accounts about about how everything will go to hell in a, in a handbasket uh, if you try these things out. And, and let's roll out all of these examples of how it's worked in order to show how dangerous and pernicious even the idea of thinking about reform might be. Let's uh, talk before we get to the welfare state bit about the difference between the liberty of the ancients, uh, which required and also give, gave you the right to actively participate in the public square yeah. versus the liberty of the moderns, which was the right to have like your own personal space to operate and live your life without too much government interference. Hirschman sort of tried out some of the old arguments about positive versus negative liberty. I hadn't quite realized that these two things in the past weren't just thought to be like two independent things to pursue, but that a lot of people thought them to be actually incompatible with each other, mutually exclusive. That's right. The the tilt to positive liberty could undermine negative liberty. Mm-hmm. So he picks up on Isaiah Berlin's famous distinction, which has you know got deep tap roots to it. But he uses that to say that in fact part of the Jeopardy argument is to recognize that there's a a delicate balance between the two, and in some senses a hierarchy between the two, because moving out ahead on positive liberties and giving social rights threatened to imperil this other one when the other, the negative liberties, were the condition for the possibility of the positive liberties. And that logic never applied in a vice versa mode, Uh right? In this formulation, right? That never were social rights seen to be a condition for political or, or civic rights. But the ancients had their eye on something. The ancients and, in a sense, the early modern Republican insight, which was very important for Adam Smith, saw that things like what we would now call human capacities, health, education, and so on, turn out to have been virtues that were important for the negative liberties, right? And so maybe by going further back into these more archaic arguments, you can find justifications that undermine the Jeopardy theorists. Yeah, and and Hirschman, I think, referred to it as the argument from mutual support, uh, which the Jeopardy theorists often just completely ignored. That's right. And so that's where these domains can mutually support each other and arrange the right way or combined in the right way can yield, in a sense, social progress without it even having to be all that audacious. 
Let's go now to the argument from Jeopardy as it applied to the welfare state. And here we do, in fact, have to start talking about Hayek's road to serfdom, which Hirschman actually seemed to have some admiration for, even as he disagreed with its basic formulation. He wasn't quite as, I guess, cantankerous about the road to serfdom as other things. But it's interesting uh, that he brought up Hayek and then essentially just argued that the history since Hayek wrote that just hasn't borne the argument out. I mean, that's right. It Although it's worth saying, Hayek is a little bit like Burke. He's someone with whom Hirschman is always jousting. And I can't remember whether I, 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 we talked about this in one of our earlier conversations, but Hirschman reads The Road to Serfdom in late 1945 in Italy when he's in the OSS. He's depressed for a whole variety of reasons. He's wandering around the streets of Rome. He's, his best and closest friend, Eugenio Colorni, has been assassinated. His sister uh, is, in his view, misbehaving. Europe is in ruins. The, the scale of the atrocities that he's na- really affecting the way he's thinking. He goes through this spell of depression, which is not common for him because he's an inveterate optimist. He writes to his wife, you know, today I wandered into a bookstore. He can never disclose his location, but one assumes it's Rome because the censors would have cut it out of the letter. I wandered into a bookstore and I picked up a book. It's by a, an Austrian who lives in England. His name is Friedrich Hayek, and it's called The Road to Serfdom. And it touched me a great deal. And it made me realize I've served in three armies. Right? He'd, he'd fought in the Spanish Civil War. He'd was in the French army and now he was in the American military and the army crushes the individual. So there was a way in which when he read, you know, the road to serfdom as a manifesto for individualism at that time. And he still, that was his openness to the individualist strain of some of this thinking. Why he was always open to to remembering that the fundamental agent, one of the fundamental agents of the modern world is the individual. And we had to we had to think more clearly about how the individual was to fit into mass society. And that Hayek was on to something, but that he got it wrong, right? And in some senses, in that long passage in, in this particular book, my read is that he thinks the road to serfdom was was in a sense the best of Hayek's works. That the later ones had less insight into the problem than that one did. It's also the book, it's worth saying, that Hayek is clearest about saying that actually some aspects of social welfare are good. Right? He wasn't just a knee-jerk, quote-unquote, reactionary. And therefore, it's a book that's worth rereading and rethinking. But in the end, you know, he comes down to viewing that welfare was going to, you know, the grease the wheels to a new form of absolutist state that was going to take liberties away from people. And that just is not what happened. Now, having said that, I mean, one of the tricks that a lot of Jeopardy theorists rely upon is feeling like they have a, well, in fact, in some versions of all reactionary rhetorics argue that they have an insight into how history will prove them right, right? And therefore, we can actually use history to assess whether these arguments have been right or wrong. And here is an instance where you have to apply the empirical method to the arguments. Uh And and Hayek goes down. Let's now talk 
briefly about something you brought up earlier, which was Hirschman's almost throwaway chapter on how progressives can also use reactionary rhetoric. I thought it was very interesting. He says at the beginning of that chapter that it almost didn't make it in, right? And he didn't have the time and the space to give it the same treatment that he gave to the reactionary thinkers who react to progress. But there were a couple of arguments that progressives also leaned a little bit too much on without giving it the proper thought. One of them was that they assume that the universe always bends towards justice, that history is, in a sense, always on their side. side. They're the masters of that particular one, and that's the Marxists in particular who command this one. And in a way, it's, it's, it's not just Marxists, but Marxists were the ones who had most elaborated that, that the change is inevitable. Not that it's futile and that all of the efforts to try to activate this purpose of form of change was simply conforming to the laws of history and the the necessary, you know, there was some kind of prescribed motion. And I should say, really, they were not just Marxists. Marxists had elaborated this most. There were other forms that had argued in the developing world. It was modernization, what's called modernization theory, had done the very same sort of thing. This was the formulation that Walt Rostow, the very important figure in the 1960s in economic thought, and as well as in the White House for both the Kennedy and the, the Johnson administrations, wrote a very popular book in 1960 called uh, The Stages of Economic Growth, and the subtitle was A Non-Communist Manifesto, right? It was Marxism, but in a modernist pro-capitalist vein. You follow the laws of motion, and you'll get development. Uh, You follow the stages, and you'll get your GDP up to some optimum level from the point of view of, of Walt Rostow. So there are two variations on that one, that history is always on your side. It's naturally forward-moving. Get with it. There was another one, right, which is that if you don't do it, you're going to blow everything to hell. Which seems to directly contradict the first. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, it, it could be repurposed in this way, but, but the idea being that, that uh, everything was much more fragile, right? Imminent catastrophe argument. Exactly. And you can hear nowadays, very popular among progressives, that if we don't do something big and audacious, and it has to be big and audacious, otherwise anything in between is is bound to fail because of the futility, perversity, and jeopardy arguments, right? So they roll out their own reactionary form. So there is a progressive reactionary form of thinking. right? Right. And if you don't go with the whole thing, we're just doomed, basically. Right. So he's looking at these two sides and he's thinking, well, the conservatives are always arguing that if you try to change something, catastrophe's waiting. The progressives are arguing that if you don't change something, catastrophe's also waiting. Yep. His point is that sometimes catastrophe's just not waiting. Yeah. Okay. Maybe everyone should calm down a bit and look at what you're talking about and talk to each other. And even even if it's contentious debate, even if it's a very difficult conversation to have, still better to have the conversation than to just shut everything down by assuming that it's all going to hell if you don't get what you want. Right. And what's potentially worse, and here you get Hirschman being, you know, slightly pessimistic in this sense, but what's slightly worse is that catastrophistic forms of thinking, whether it's the progressive sort or the, you know, conservative sort, 
can yield self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, you could actually make things worse with some of these arguments. And here's uh, how I want to close our chat, Jeremy. Not with the final chapter in the book, because we actually already discussed this, which is that Hirschman didn't want people to come away from this book thinking that like he'd figured out the way the world works. He wanted people to realize that they also probably didn't know exactly how the world works and that they should be open to different outcomes. Um, Against intransigence is what it's called, and I agree with you. That probably would have made a better title for the book itself, yeah. right? I wanted to talk instead about an article that you wrote that is Hirschman-inspired, yeah. uh, and that could be titled Against Disparist Thinking, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Can you kind of just give us like the background for uh, the article and, and tell us what sort of led you to, to write it and what it says? Yeah, yeah. So it's an article against... Like Hirschman, it's going after a style of argument, right, that's very prevalent nowadays. But it's a declinist style of argument, which dominates some of, or it's very pervasive anyway, in public discourse. Um, and, and here, too, we have a uh, conservative variation on, on this, which is, and you can hear this, for instance, in the writings of David Brooks would be a mild version. There's a more hysterical version of this, which is, um, you know, that Western civilization is doomed. This is, would be like Steve Bannon way of formulating things that we have to double down and defend Western, the core values of Western civilization against all that's threatening it. And there's a lot out there that's threatening it. And then there's a progressive version of apocalyptic thinking. I think of, I hear it most among people who think that climate change is going to destroy the planet. It's going to be ruinous for a lot of people. But uh, the argument that if we don't do something immediate, totalizing, absolute, that just transforms our fundamental way of living, we're just going to bake here on Earth is another variation on that, but just from, let's say, the more progressive end of things. I hear that argument, though, from the progressive side, at least in the short term also, that the rise of Brexit and Trump are assumed to represent some kind of a new semi-permanent order. Uh, I think what you're trying to say in this article and what you cite Hirschman as likely to have thought is that, again, you're assuming that the current outcome is it, is a fixed point. But we're learning ourselves now about what works, about what doesn't work, about the limits uh, of our institutions, about how they should be fixed. It's not necessarily the case that however it is that we come out of it now and however bad it gets, because it admittedly could get really bad, that we won't know anything when we do finally come out the other side. Right. Well, declinist thinking is only one way to approach problems. It doesn't mean that not to be declinist means you don't think that there are problems to solve out there. And I think some of the blowback on that article doesn't understand that that's not actually what the identification of the declinist trap as uh, leading us into, uh, into circular forms of reasoning. But yeah, we can learn about what's going wrong and, and maybe what's going right, that sometimes incremental changes are happening on the ground, that people are making adaptations that could be scaled up. There are lots of ways of, of, of doing this. But we don't see them immediately precisely because they're they still at a time, small scale. Right? right, and they produce side effects and unintended consequences that can yield benefit. You, you know, But if you eliminate the possibility that they might work from the start, you'll never see them, of course. Right, That's the, the closed form of the argument. That that's one side of it, that it would never allow for even the possibility of a modicum of change. The other side of it is to confuse 
what we're going through now with some kind of new structural binding inescapable fate right when sometimes these are just growing pains of change right about the development of multicultural societies, urbanization, new technologies that we don't understand very well, except that we have great podcasts that illuminate these things. <laughs> but we should stop listening to those because they might actually teach us something that we didn't know before, right. right? That there's a tendency to think, to look at the current condition, to think it's all about decline, when in fact sometimes it's about change itself. And that's why going back... And this, you know, the article goes back to the 18th century also to see the origins of some of this. There, the declinist thinker that I start out with is Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire. To think that also declinist forms of arguing was sewn into the modern condition. When things start to go wrong or there's turmoil and anxiety, and we live in an age of anxiety, the rush to declinist forms of thinking is is almost is really hard to resist. I want to bring up a very specific example where we can apply uh, some of these themes. It's one that uh, you and I uh, discussed in a phone chat offline uh, earlier. Our listeners, yes, might like to learn that you and I geek out on Hirschman uh, offline sometimes, okay? <laughs> um, and it's the example of Angela Merkel's decision to yeah. let in uh, almost a million refugees yeah, in right. the last few years. The sort of response from conservative writers in particular, but not just conservative writers, has been a kind of hectoring bellow of yeah. despair that this is failure what, exclamation more yeah. and, and but not just failure that this is what led to the backlash yeah. against immigration in general that's like the perversity argument right. almost that it was partly responsible for uh the populist wave and i asked you uh what you thought hirschman might have thought of it and you had something really interesting to say about this can, can you kind of take us through that oh my god you mean i have to remember what we said no, I'll, 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 I'll tell you i'll get you started i'll get you started if it happened before yesterday i've already it forgotten did. i'll get you started you said that Hirschman would have considered it audacious, bold, okay, yeah. maybe even a little bit impetuous, but that also it would have provided an incredibly valuable opportunity right. to learn. Right. So there are, there are a couple of things. Now I'm kind of... It's coming back. It's coming back <laughs> out of the fog. So two things. One, he, he, he would have applauded the style. And, and it goes back to our ongoing conversation about doubt. Sometimes you don't have to know everything before doing something risky, right? In fact, that's the definition of taking a risk. So he would have liked that style of, I don't know everything here, but there is a problem out there that we've got to solve. Let's, let's try it on a big way, gulp, take some risks, go at it, and actually then learn from what we do. Uh, otherwise, if we don't take the risk, we're minimizing the capacity to learn. It goes back to something we've been talking about. Earlier. That's one side of it. The other is the appeal to, in a sense, a fusion of ethical reasoning, because he believed that there was a morality to the social sciences, to, to our condition, with enlightened self-interest. Because her pitch to bring in uh, a million refugees was premised on the proposition that the German economy and German society could really do with a hit of young people with talents and eagerness to improve their lives and that there was a demographic problem that had to be resolved. So Germans had a self-interest in being empathetic and charitable. So those would have been two points that he would have said, I like that style. 
I guess the the other thing might have been that uh, you raised the issue of like multiculturalism earlier, right? Hirschman saw that this might become an increasingly prominent part of Western society. In other words, uh, that until 1989, things like class warfare, arguments over divisible things like, you know, how you allocate taxes and the great sort of socialism versus capitalism debate, those things tended to dominate, right? And that with those wars, not completely won, right, but effectively won for a while, right? that the remaining arguments might become a little bit more intense, but that also the experience would be totally new, right? So that the mixture of issues of identity and economics would be more and more complicated. Now, Hirschman, sadly, isn't around to sort of help us map and experience this new dimension, but he saw that it would become more complicated. What he never said, including in the essay where he brought this up, was that we wouldn't be able to map it, that we wouldn't be able to deal with it, right? It was a very kind of a soothing almost approach that you didn't have to either become super triumphalist about the conflicts uh, that you've won, right? And you should be careful with that because things can get worse, but also that you didn't have to fall into the kind of declinist thinking that you cite in your piece and despair. And I got to say, as somebody who just has started reading Hirschman, the original for the first time in the last year or so after I read your biography, mm-hmm. right? I have found it to be a very soothing antidote to the times. You know, I have found it to be uh, something that gives me a little bit more peace. Not, I don't want to say hope because there's no sense of false hope in Hirschman, right? But a very kind of cautious optimism that I don't have to engage in the bitter back and forth that seems to be so prominent now that it's okay to step back and that psychologically it's probably healthier to just look at what things are happening and realize that a lot of these debates have happened before and that even the new debates can be dealt with because the debates of the past were at one point also the new debates of that era. Right. Actually, it's consoling <laughs> that, that you had that read on the work because, in fact, that's his very much what he was trying to do. You know, as as my students say, chill. You know, get a perspective <laughs> on these things, and their perspective doesn't always have to be a pessimistic one. I mean, that's something that historians very often relish. Is you know that they are very prone to decline as forms of things. But sometimes a wider perspective on things can yield some upbeat stories. Of course, many of Hirschman's critics and many of them had a point that an overemphasis on the up often meant he discounted the downs. I mean, he was always, in this sense, he was a modernist in the sense that he wanted to push things forward and believed that telling the upbeat story leaned towards trying to make it into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. So what he was trying to say about reactionaries, he sometimes collapsed into himself, right, of only seeing the good versions of stories. And that included, you know, how easy it was going to be to create multicultural societies. Yeah, You know, the backlash, you know, I, I, I think he would be dismayed by it. And I think... You know, this is something he had a bit of a blind spot to. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, he's seen this from the 30s. And and, and there was a weakness in his thinking on that one, on community life, right? I guess uh, it does require a very, very long-term perspective, yeah. right? And I, I should say, I, I myself don't have to go too far for evidence of that because uh, my parents being Cuban and as somebody who studied 
the Cuban situation and reported from Cuba, right. you could say that, yes, uh, a lot of what's awful that's happened there has yielded learning opportunities, but also what's awful has now lasted almost six decades. That, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes, you know, there was a tendency for him to think he was an economist, that if given time and given the mobility of resources and of our imagination, we will find equilibrium. But sometimes the needle gets stuck. I mean, he had this, this could get stuck on the left. It could get stuck on the right. And these forms of intentions could, could dig in. And Fidel was, if nothing, a master intransigent reasoner, right? That you could have very prolonged bouts of bad things happening. And he didn't have a good theory for how that could happen taken away all of my uh, soothing, uh, cautious optimism now. <laughs> <laughs> but remember th- that if, if one is ever tempted, this is what he would say, if one is ever tempted to bask in the one side, remember the other side is always there, right? So if you're going to get the Kleinist, and, and Cuba is their epithets we could use to describe it, that many of the you know re- super pessimists would argue that the, the island that we loved is lost and gone. There's always another side to it, right? So nothing ever lives outside attention with its opposite. Reactionaries uh, with progressives, in a sense, cosmopolitans with nativists or communitarians. Uh, they're always in an internal dialogue and tension. With, and we don't necessarily know how things are going to come out in any given time. Uh, one final question. I should have asked you last time what you were working on, and we could have had like a nice preview of this uh, Declinist uh, article that you were working yeah, yeah. on. Uh, so let me not make that mistake this time. What's your What's your next uh, writing project? So I'm I'm uh, trying to finish a book that is supposedly a brief one. It's getting longer as I write it, but it's it's about how we humans around the planet uh, have been thinking about interdependence since about the late or the middle of the 19th century to the present interdependence with strangers so how free trade communications stitch together an interdependent world order and we've been having a debate ever since mill and marx really saw this happening about whether this was a good or a bad thing in our basic ambivalence about it. There have been positive arguments for interdependence, but also very strong arguments against it. And right now we're going through a mood that is, uh, let's say, swinging towards the negative variation on interdependence. And I just think we need to understand ourselves in a global way um, much better. Okay, we'll look forward to that. Jeremy, uh, this trilogy on Albert O'Hirschman has been a genuine delight, man, a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Cardiff. Good luck, and I'm looking forward to hearing more from you on a different frequency. Thank you. And that is the end of our chat with Jeremy Edelman uh, and the final installment of our trilogy on Albert O. Hirschman. Uh, give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one for our overseas listeners. Or email us at alphachat at ft. Dot com. Please leave us a review or ratings on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find out about us. And you can get show notes to this and all other prior episodes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Finally, Amy Keene, the amazing producer and editor of this show, has been so instrumental in the development of this podcast. She never gets enough credit. All of these weird exaggerations that you think I'm using at the end of these podcasts, they're not exaggerations at all. She deserves 
all the credit in the world for it. Thanks for everything, Amy. And one last time from me, thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.